Over the last couple of Sundays, we have been spending our Sunday mornings during this season of Advent in John's Gospel. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to John chapter 1 as we're reading from verse 6 to verse 14. John chapter 1. And you'll find it on page 1646 of the church Bible. Page 1646, John chapter 1, verse 6 through 14. The Apostle John is perhaps in his late 80s or early 90s. New Testament scholars tell us he was 10 or 12 years younger than Jesus, and he's coming towards the end of his life, and he's writing his gospel. Many scholars will tell you that John was aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels, and so as John, towards the end of his life, begins to craft his gospel, he does it radically different from the other gospel writers, and so he begins with what we know as John's prologue, and so we're breaking into John's prologue at verse 6. And John, having spent the first five verses describing Christ, he contrasts it in verse 6 with the following words. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mentioned earlier, here is John, the older apostle by this stage, late 80s, his early 90s. He's writing his gospel, and he writes very differently from Matthew and Mark. And as we're breaking into it, we get to verse 6, and he begins, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. And the apostle John is writing of John the Baptist, to make that clear for us. And here's my question. If you were a television talk show host, or you had a talk radio program, and you had as your special guest on this third Sunday in December, all the way from Galilee, your special guest today is John the Baptist. How would you introduce John? What would you say about him? So your listeners knew exactly who he was, what he'd achieved, who he was in the economy of God's redemptive purposes. What would you say about John? What do you say? 
Luke's infancy narrative, which are basically the first four chapters of Luke's gospel. Luke tells us about John's father, Zechariah, who was a priest from the division of Abijah. We know about his mom, Elizabeth. We know that Elizabeth was the cousin of Mary, Jesus' mother, and they were direct cousins, which made John and Jesus second cousins. Can you imagine what it was like in the home of John the Baptist when John was a wee boy and Jesus came for a sleepover? Can you imagine that? I mean, did he take cushions off the couch and make a fort and play? Did they slide down the banister and play tag and hide and seek? When Joseph tucked him into bed at night, did he snuggle onto the bed with them and tell them stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Did he tell them about David? Did he tell them about Isaiah and Jeremiah? Did he tell them all these stories? Moments ago, we had that spectacular rendition of Mary, did you know? And one of my questions on the talk show to John was, John, when did you realize? Was it when Jesus kept winning at hide and seek and you thought, this guy's omniscient? Is that, is, was it there? Was it in your late teenage years when you began to develop discernment and thought, wait a minute, there's something different? Were you an adult? When did you know? And when the Apostle John is writing of John the Baptist, none of this comes up. He doesn't mind. He just begins almost in clear, stark terms. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now hold that in your mind for a moment and come back with me to that first Sunday in December a few weeks back when we looked at those first five verses of John's gospel. And what was it we said about those five verses? So let me give you a quick overview of that. So please bear with me. I'm about to go a little deeper and become technical. Musicians, choir, if you see them dozing or glazing over, let me know, please, because we're about to become a little technical. John has written some of the most carefully constructed, finely honed words in all of the New Testament in John's prologue. They're right there. And so when John writes, there came a man who was sent from God, he's intentional, deliberate. He's designed it as such because his first five verses are very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Luke, when they are introducing their gospel, in other words, when they're telling about Jesus, they highlight for us wise men and shepherds and angels and Bethlehem and an inn and a stable and a manger and the Christ child in swaddling clothes. That's Matthew and Luke. They begin with nativity. Mark 
quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. And so the first two are nativity, Mark is prophecy, and John, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Nativity, prophecy, and John focuses on eternity. And he does so quite deliberately. And New Testament scholars tell us this, that he uses two literary devices. And the first is this. It is what's called, and forgive me for this, it is stairway or staircase parallelism. Parallelism, that is not easy to say. And it works like this. He begins on a particular note, in the beginning, reflective of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word. And then he steps up. And the Word was with God, and He steps up again, and the Word was God. He's forcing you to climb each time He introduces a new subject. And when He gets to the top of the stair, and He has revealed His climax, He then starts coming back down, and He was with God in the beginning. That's how John does it. In the original language, you see it and you think, look at this. And the other literary device he uses is this. And musicians enjoy this, I think, quite simply because of this. You have trained your eye for detail. And your eye very quickly takes in what's on the page. Choir members are the same. If you read music, you'll know exactly what I mean. And so John is not only stairway parallelism, he also uses what is called a chiastic structure. In other words, he repeats for emphasis and clarification, and he does it at the same time. In the beginning, like Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, repetition for clarity, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so, having moved his reader's heart and mind and soul heavenward, in contrast and comparison, he then writes, there came a man. Not the Word, not the one who was eternal, not the one who is co-equal with God and co-eternal, but there came a man. Not just ordinary man. He came a man who was sent from God. Sometimes we may find ourselves, it's fairly rare for most of us, I imagine, when we are at an event when the president is there. And everyone is milling around and the music begins and then suddenly we stand out of respect for the office. If the president can't make it, he'll send, of course, the vice president, his personal representative. And we stand immediately out of respect. But can you begin to imagine what John is saying? There came a man who was sent from 
God. That's why he introduces John that way. That's why his focus is on eternity. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Now, why does John talk about light? John's prologue in many ways is like entering into the foyer of the grandest hotel you can imagine. And you look around and you're gasping for breath to see the decor and the height of the reception area. And you think to yourself, what can the rest of the hotel be like if this is just a reception? That's what John is seeking to do here. And John compares light and darkness, death and life, and he does it throughout his gospel. Again, at the end of Mary, did you know, the closing words were, he is the great I am. And where does that come from? It comes from John's gospel. Seven times he uses the phrase, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, which he's introducing for the first time here. He goes on, I am the gate into heaven. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. When John is writing, he is attempting to say to us, understand, grasp the enormity of what is happening here. Very God of very God, the light of his love and salvation and grace is coming into this world in Christ. That's what's happening here. And that's why he writes, he himself was not the light, John the Baptist. He came as one testifying to the light. And then notice verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The true light. What is John telling us? He's telling us this. John is writing of an experience that is not some mystical, subjective, internal experience. He's saying the light of God's love is objective. It is breaking into our world. It transforms the heart and the soul. It takes us out of the darkness and the toxicity of sin that disables and is dark and deceives and debilitates everything it touches. And the light of God is coming into this world to change and transform and bring hope and a future and purpose and meaning. But most of all, above all things, He's coming to bring intimacy with the living God. That's why John is writing the way he's writing. And then he takes us a step further. And what does he say? Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 9 and verse 11. 
John uses for the first time the word believe. He uses it over a hundred, well, not quite over, it's about 97 times in his gospel. Three times more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke put together. He uses it as a verb. I remember when I was eight years old, I remembered it as clearly as yesterday. My teacher in school taught me my first piece of grammar, and she said, a verb is a doing word. It is running, jumping, falling. When I became an adult, I also discovered that a verb is a state of being. When you're running, you're in a state of being. You're in a state of running. When you're falling, you're in a state of falling. I had no idea. I simply thought it was an action word. But John is saying here that belief is a verb. It's action. It is trusting an individual. It's not bringing affirmation to a list of religious truths. It is trusting a person. It is wholeheartedly handing over heart, life, mind, soul, submitting and surrendering your entire life to Christ. That's why John is saying the light of God's love is breaking into our world that we might believe. John uses that term world in three different ways. Sometimes it's a geographical entity. Sometimes he's describing a large number of people. And the third and most popular use in John's gospel of the world is this, a spiritual entity that has been impacted, that has been deceived, that lives in darkness without any hope of life. And so when John says, he came into the world and the world did not receive him, they did not receive him because they enjoyed and liked the sin they were involved in. That's what John is meaning. And yet the light broke into it. It brought hope. It brought transformation. It brought renewal. It brought purpose and meaning to life. And that is why the hymn writer is able to say, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, knowing that there was more to life than the darkness and debilitation and deceptive and disabling power of sin, knowing there was more than that. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices, O oh, night divine, O oh, night when Christ was born. That's why John writes the way he writes. It is so much greater we could ever imagine. 
And how does he wrap it all up? How does he take what is some of the greatest, most sublime biblical theology to be found anywhere? How does he wrap it all up? Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he goes on. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a way to bring an end to his prologue. Full of grace and truth. Well, here's my final question in these closing moments. Is that what you would have written to give it a summary and a conclusion? We have seen his glory. I suspect I would have been tempted to say, we saw him walking on water. We saw him feed 5,000. We saw him say, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead rose and came back to life. Wouldn't you have been tempted to put that down there somewhere? Wouldn't you? We heard his teaching. We watched it impact and transform thousands. Wouldn't you have longed to put all that down there? But John's had decades and decades and decades to think and plan and imagine and write and rewrite and craft and hone. And so in verse 14... The Word became flesh. He's saying, do you understand the enormity of it? Do you grasp the intensity and the profundity of God in all His glory becomes a child? No wonder the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth on whom His favor rests. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only God in all his preeminence, in all of his holiness, radiant in splendor, was right there. And John can only write in awe and wonder. That's what's going on. Now you're beginning to get a sense of it. Forget stairway parallelism. Forget chiastic structure. Be lost in the wonder and immensity of his love. And let your heart sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's John. And we're not even in the second chapter. That's John. And before the first chapter ends, John is mentioned again. 
And it's at the baptism of Jesus. And this is why he can say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Here's my challenge for you this week. In addition to all the presents still needing to be bought, the lights to go in the trees, the planning of the Christmas menu, the Christmas party still to attend, the schedule that's back to back for the next 10 days. Take some time. Get on your knees and read again the prologue of John. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. Thank you that very God of very God made his dwelling among us, and may we enjoy the infinite wonder and glory of this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray.